It's morning, sometime around the year 1590 in Stratford-upon-Avon. A young writer and sometimes actor is getting ready to leave for London as his sleeping son wakes up. Dad. Good morrow, Prince Hamlet. Why don't tell the stories, Papa? Ah. Then I will leave Queen Map with thee. What's she? She is a fairy, no bigger than a gnat. And night by night, she creeps into boys' ears and tells stories of... what? Dragons. Aye. Dragons. Can you be satisfied with Mab till I return? If you hear echoes of the young father's future in that tender family moment, you're not mistaken. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. What you just heard is from the opening scene of the pilot episode of a new TV series that has just premiered on the cable channel TNT. The series is called Will. And as you've probably figured out by now, it tells stories derived from what's commonly known as Shakespeare's lost years, the time before he made a name for himself as a writer. The series takes advantage of that gaping hole in Shakespeare's biography to weave an intricate and exciting tale of art, strife, death, love, poetry, and violence in Elizabethan England. In the first episode, Will arrives in London where, in this version of the story, he's hunted as a Catholic. The theater of James Burbage is in desperate need of a play. The one they were promised by Christopher Marlowe is not coming. Baxter has written a new play. <laughs> now we can pass it off as Marlowe. No one will believe his dog's vomit is Marlowe. Uh, how dare you? I have a play. Who are you? William Shakespeare. Never heard of you. Just listen to him, Father. I'm an actor and... I'm not hiring actors. And my play's called Edward III. Uh, God, a history play. We sat down with the series writer, Craig Pierce, and its director, Shaker Kapoor. Craig wrote the screenplays for Moulin Rouge, The Great Gatsby, and Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Shaker, no stranger to Elizabethan drama, directed the movie Elizabeth and its sequel, Elizabeth the Golden Age. Craig and Shaker are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Craig, this was your idea. How did it come to you? Well, I've always had a love for Shakespeare. Um, but one of my earliest memories is at home with my mum. I was about eight years old and she was washing up and I was drying and I was helping mum learn her lines for an amateur production of Romeo and Juliet that she was in. And I sort of became the nerdy kid in class who would laugh at the Shakespeare jokes when the teachers read the play aloud uh, that we were studying. And my friends would look at me like, what's he laughing at? You know, um, then I went to drama school. I studied as an actor for three years in Sydney, and we read a lot of Shakespeare plays. And um, so I, I just had this love for Shakespeare, but I was very aware that A, Shakespeare was writing for the people, and, and B, that this sort of snobbery had grown up around Shakespeare that I hated because that wasn't what Shakespeare w was about. So... Uh, it was partly that fascination with Shakespeare. And then when I started researching more about his life, I realized that he was the most famous person 
in the world that no one knew anything about because there's so little biographical detail about his life that is actually agreed upon. Well, these are the lost years. Yeah. That is the great yeah. mystery. This is this is the period that, that everyone yearns to know about. And then also, you know, I was very aware that the Elizabethan world was such an incredible moment in history. It was when the modern world was being invented and modern popular culture was and entertainment as we know it today was being invented. Theatre was coming uh, back into the Western world for the first time since Roman times. So all of this made you think, oh, television, it's perfectly, this is a great idea for television. Let's explore the young Will. Yeah, exactly. And I was really aware that so much incredible writing was happening on long form Television. Well, I can see why you'd be interested. And of course, here at the Folger, we'd be so interested in any <laughs> show about William Shakespeare. But, but Hollywood and and uh, the networks, not so much. Shaker, why do you think TNT went for a show about Shakespeare's life? I can only uh, conjecture why they would have gone. I think that every channel today in the U.S. has seen what Netflix is doing and what Amazon is doing and what HBO did. And everybody wants a range, you know. So TNT were very, very had a very strong range at one end of the pyramid, and then they wanted a strong range at the other end of the pyramid. I'm pretty sure they didn't know what they were going to get. Vas, I am the Tentator, the first to falter. Save us from these troublesome fellows. Country bumbling, rude mechanicals, upstart crows, beautified with our feathers. They flock to London to ape their betters. I know that they were fascinated by Craig's writing, as I was, and I know that they were huge fans of Romeo and Juliet, the film, as I was, but I think that they were too were surprised at what came across. Why thy brain is so dull, thy tongue is tight. So why take offence that this dull brain doth foolishly wish to entertain? <laughs> I make no claim to fame, hold none in disdain. Why dost thou fear this humble, rustic swain? Fear thee? To demonstrate my superiority... He'll I quote another Nonsensicality. Nonsensicality? Pray, what is that? The prating nonsense of a tavern rat. Thy hair is wild, but thy wit is tame. Lame as an old nag, thou rides it for shame. Thy wit is so stale, worms would not eat it. It cannot be spoken, only excreted. <laughs> And that was a very wonderful thing when Craig and I realized that they were getting surprised with all the dailies that were coming in. They did not expect that. So it's part of the adventure of whether it's television making or filmmaking. And I think that's why they went for it. They needed something diametrically different, appeal to a different audience, fundamentally change the character of who TNT is and who TNT drama is. Bring a stool so this knave can sit. Quill, by common will, shall be his epithet. <laughs> if this upstart has offended, think on this, I pray. All's mended. Whether fine-feathered or the most common of birds, to wing our way to heaven, all we need are words. Yeah!
Well, it is clear from the start of, of this show, too, Craig, that that this is a different look at Shakespeare yeah. and a different yeah. feel, uh, yes. a, a different uh, aesthetic. And I'm thinking of the very first scene of the pilot. I, I love how you get straight to this whole <laughs> issue of how we think of Shakespeare as a sacred cow. Mm. And you give us a 20-something nobody scribbling away at his desk in Stratford, and his wife, Anne Hathaway, comes up behind him and says, Who wants a play by William Shakespeare? can't spend the rest of my life making gloves. Oh, who'd want to play by William Shakespeare? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you know, that was really fundamental to the idea of the show was to pull Shakespeare down off the pedestal and say he didn't spring into the world as a middle-aged genius. He struggled. And, you know, even if you read, you know, Henry VI, part one, two, and three, you know, who out there has actually seen a production of those plays? Then they have greatness in them but they're not that great if Shakespeare's reputation had just rested upon those three plays we wouldn't be here talking about him today so it was really important for me to say especially to younger audiences everyone even the most famous writer in the world struggles and you may not always achieve your dream or your objective but you just have to put one foot after the other and keep on striving and and keep on moving forward. And the destination can change, the dream can change, but don't be discouraged if it doesn't work out at first. Right, and it's a crazy idea. I mean, he's he's going off to, leaving his wife and three kids mm. uh, to to become a rock star. Exactly, to become a rock star. And that's what it was like back then. It was like saying, honey, I've got the solution to all our problems. I know we've got three kids, no money. We live in this tiny little house with my you know, crazy father, but I'm going to go to Mars and become a rock star. I mean, that's how slim the chances of success were. They say in London, people cry the names of players as if they were kings. I dream this for us. Oh, no, Will. Your dreams are your own. Trust me, Anne. So, Shaker, Will is off to London for the first time in this pilot episode, and this London that you create is its really wonderful. It's, it's just like a planet that they'd visit on a Joss Whedon sci-fi series. <laughs> Everything is larger and crazier than life, and every possible thing is going on right there on the street. Guys, sir! Canoeing can! Oh, I'll show you all the sights, sir! Bowling alleys! Car dens! Pistol shooting! Bears! Ripped apart by wild dogs. Carnival barkers and exotic animals. I think they're camels in there and they're live eels for sale and they're tradespeople. It's all knife sharpeners, you know, hurly burly. It's a very hyper real aesthetic. Where did you go for your inspiration in depicting London street life for this? Well, <clears throat> I don't know where Josh Whedon went to get his thing. I'm not sure what his life experience is, but my life experience was exactly this. I was a middle-class Indian boy from a middle-class background in India, and I came to London, and the first place I went to was the most famous place in London, and that was Carnaby Street. So one of the things when I was doing the production design, I told everybody, I said, I don't remember what the buildings were like. The fundamental mistake we make is when we, <clears throat> when we do a historical, we talk about buildings as the architecture and the design. I kept saying the design is the people. And my memory is about being confronted by the diaspora of the people. And so that's what I tried to bring to this. 
my memories of being totally zonked by London of the 70s, Carnaby Street of the 70s. In fact, you'll even see somebody that's dressed like they're out of Sergeant Pepper's Lowly Hearts Band. He walks by. <laughs> that's you know, true. It's, right? And so it was all just about trying to see, put myself into Shakespeare's head and say, guys, we are not making a historical. We are making somebody that is alive in a place that is alive at a time that was actually probably much more alive than we are in now. Let's torch the place! The great Christopher Marlowe! Holla, ye pampered jades of Asia! Oh, yes, holla! Ye pepper jades of Asia! <laughs> but this new play is even greater than the great Tamburlaine the Great. What's it called? Uh, Tamburlaine the Ghost! Tamburlaine the Ghost! Ghost? Oh, Marlowe, do that brilliantly! <laughs> And that is the London that I try to recreate. Where does my inspiration come from? Well, for the architecture, it comes from the slums of Mumbai because the theatre was in Shoreditch. Shoreditch was just outside the walls of London. It was a slum. The crowds, the idea that every time anybody talked about the people on the streets, they were just a mass. Colour belonged to the nobility because they're the only ones that could at that time pay the artists to portray them. So we had no real references about the people. So I went, and if you walk down the slums of Mumbai, you realize one thing, that the less you have, the more individualistic you get. Because every human being wants to say, I am, I am, I am. And I remember Craig and me going to the Globe Theatre and understanding that Shakespeare actually wrote for the masses. For the first time, I understood that what's called Shakespearean, the language that intellectuals, the so-called intellectuals, are supposed to know and we, the ignorant masses, were not, were actually was a language, it was a slang of that time. And so, excuse me, you could take this out if you want, but I said to Craig, I said, when the f*** did the intellectuals usurp Shakespeare? And in that sentence, I fell in love with him. And I think, you know, what Shaker was saying about coming into Shoreditch for the first time, it's about perception. And um, what we've done in capturing and showing that is to say that this is what it would have felt like for a young kid from the middle of nowhere to come to London from the first time. And the real evidence for the proof of that is in Shakespeare's plays because there's such vibrancy in the language and the storytelling, such colour and movement and pace and, and energy. So it must have right, been a vibrant Right, and in the performance itself, and that that's mm. another thing that this first mm. episode captures really well, what, what the life of a groundling was like. And we all know that Shakespeare wrote for the masses, but... What did that feel like? And the way you depict it, Shaker, particularly the way you direct it, you experience what that means. Away with me, my rhythm! Damn you, Richard, rhythm! Rhythm! Your son you? is ruining my play! I bloody ruin you! It's a disaster! The audience is just wild and they're barely civilized and they're chanting and shouting and throwing trash at the actors and the pit is like a mosh pit. And yeah. and you get this sense that Shakespeare, you know, had his work cut out for him just getting these people to shut up and watch the stage. You know, um, my greatest fear is that when people make a film about me and Craig 400 years from now, we'll be standing straight, we'll be 
enunciating rather than speaking. We will be holding hands rather than having wild sex. You know what I mean? It's just that every time we, we tend to look with at each other. With each other? Yeah. <laughs> I've made a few proposals to him and he says no. So I've given up. He has some other But where interests. did you go for the, for the inspiration? Well, for, for I, listen, I come from Mumbai, okay? One thing did happen, which I'm very, very scared to say because people will start calling... Uh, they would say it's a Bollywood version of Shakespeare. No, the fact though is the, that when they I said look, that about Elizabeth, they mm-hmm. said that uh, which I thought no, they said it's an MTV version of a, of a British Court, and I started to celebrate, and everybody said, "Guy Shaker, it's not a compliment; it's a criticism." <laughs> so I, just, I took it as a compliment. But you know, I have this thing about the whole idea was to put the audience in the middle of the action, so they feel they are part of that event. They feel that they're part of Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's life. And the, uh, and the other way that you, you bring this very much down to, to the masses and, and, and a popular culture is that you create this 1980s kind of punk rock uh, vibe with the, uh, him mm. arriving in London with the soundtrack uh, to The Clash's London Calling and mm. the clothes and the tattoos mm. and, 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 and such violence at the, at, in the theater performance. Yeah. Well, I would say that a large part of that music was inherent in the script that I read. And I remember when I used to, uh, when we first started, I got my production designers and got everybody aboard. I would put poor old Craig on the spot and I say, Craig, can you give us a reading? Because in his reading, he would sing the songs. <laughs> in his reading, he would go with it. And I'd say, understand the tone of his readings. In that tone that Craig reads lies the very essence of our design. I imagine people getting such a kick out of all the Easter eggs that you drop yeah. for, for yeah. Shakespeare fans. Well, when actors are act, they hold a mirror up to nature, as it were. A mirror up to nature. As opposed to car. James Burbage so is trying to stop a riot among the groundlings and he yells, friends, uh, patrons, lend me your ears. It's an it's a delicious thing to think. Oh, okay. Shakespeare heard that. Will heard that. So maybe that's later when he wrote Julius Caesar. That's where he got the idea for the line, "Friends, Romans, countrymen." But it also helps you to write better dialogue because you know James Burbage could just come out on stage and go, uh, "Stop fighting, shh, everyone, shh, shh, shh." shh. But if you, <laughs> which is a pretty pretty bad dialogue. But you know, if you sort of reach into the Shakespeare treasure chest and play amongst there and steal all the really good bits. It helps you to think about your dialogue in a more imaginative way. And, and and I think, you know, it's not only just cool stuff for people who know about Shakespeare. It's actually, it feels of the world. It feels of the time. But, you know, it also feels strangely modern. Well, another thing that you play up in this pilot are the uh, Catholic-Protestant tensions, that side of the story. It's mm. a significant part. And you show the violence of it rather vividly. Mm. A Catholic mm. heretic gets publicly disemboweled uh, in, in very near the beginning of the episode. And it felt as if you were making a parallel to modern-day religious strife and beheadings and the, the brutality used by, by terrorists and other yeah. fundamentalist jihadis. Yeah. Was that a clear intention of yours, Craig? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you never write about history unless you're also writing about the present because there's no point. You might as well m- make a documentary. So in many things in the vibrancy of the world, the punk aesthetic, the music and the political divide of the world, a a world riven by fundamentalist 
uh, religious ideas and politics, very consciously I was making a parallel between today and, and then because then suddenly your story isn't about an anachronistic person who lived 400 years ago. It's about you. And the show all the way through is a play between here and now and now and here and back and forwards. And it's saying that ideas and culture and storytelling, they constantly flow between the past and the present and the present and the past. And it's this circuit really where ideas and unfortunately in many ways the troubles and the strife of life keep on cycling through. And you and if you don't pay attention to history and don't learn from it, well, you get stuck in this wheel. Well, there are plenty of people from history in, in the show, uh, people we know from Shakespeare's life, and one of them is Will Kemp, the, the comedic actor. And the first time we meet him in your pilot, it's... What? I said get out of there and calm things down! It's during a production of a, a truly terrible play, and he's right in the wings backstage having sex with a groupie. Now, get out of there! Jesus, what? Yeah, let Kemp do it all. Can't even get his end away without being interrupted by some... And then he gets called on stage suddenly to try to save the tanking production by doing a Morris dance, but we already think of him as a real degenerate, mm. you know, not some kind of lighthearted clown. He's more like... John Belushi on a, on, a, on a tear. Sure, sure. So, so what all do we actually know about Will Kemp, and what did you know? Was any of that based on real life, or did you, did you just dream up this kind of insane, gritty comic character? Well, I, look, I mean, what we do know about him is that at a certain point he danced from London to Norwich, and he called it the Nine Days of Wonder because it took him nine days and thousands of people would line the roads to see him dance, and, uh, and he actually pamphlets were produced of him dancing now i think you have to be pretty insane to to do that um we know from our own experience that often brilliant comics are very troubled and have a very dark side and that a lot of that brilliance and a lot of that comic genius comes from trying to reconcile themselves with these these forces that are whirling around inside of them there's love war death betrayal is there any comedy? Uh, the Scottish characters are quite funny. Ah, Scots are funny. You know, the wonderful thing about this history is that it's so lost in time, much of it, because no one was actually sitting down recording the theatre world and saying, oh, these are important people in culture and history. We have to record what happens to them. Well, let me just talk about Kemp a little. Um, you know what? I had worked with that actor before, and I knew that if I could get him to play Kemp, I, he would bring something that is unknown. He wouldn't play it as a straight comic, and I didn't want that character just be a straight comic. What I wanted that character to be is a straight comic, and then some unexplained anger inside him which is what Craig was talking about. Because, you know, characterization is not about defining. It's about it allowing the audience to explore. But I think that's where it succeeded, that he brought something that was not quite comic. You couldn't understand, is he angry? Is he playing at comedy? What is he doing? But yet you see the audience respond to him. And you as a viewer respond to him. Master Kemp, what? In this scene, the line where you... The line? Shut your gob, sonny. Watch your star. Shut there's a very three-dimensional character as well when in uh, the sister of Richard Burbage, Alice. And Craig, it doesn't matter, of course, but, but do we know whether Richard Burbage had a sister? We don't know. Well, if... I don't know now. Of course she had. <laughs> her name's Alice. All right, and her name is Alice. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, I am that most useless of creatures, an educated woman. It seems that women are only good for ruling the nation, rearing children and whoring. I have yet to decide which path I shall choose. You know, Shakespeare wrote such incredible characters for women. And I think Alice, for me, was always an amalgamation of some of those qualities, of those iconic Shakespearean characters. Henslow is trying to ruin us. But we don't need his proxy playwright. We have you. I that we do! <laughs> You're dressed as a man. Tis easier to go abroad at night like this. Methinks thou art a pretty fellow. Oh, sodomite. Sodomite. They form a very important relationship that runs throughout the show and they learn from each other. And, and I wanted to create a character that Will could learn from and, and also vice versa. She learns from him, which is what true friendship, true, a true relationship is, is really about. I, I quite I, I love uh, Alice. I, I think that she embodies a lot of what being creative is all about. I mean, being creative is to explore your feminine side, and every character, whether it's Marlowe or Alice, also represents a part of who Will was, or you know, what does creativity mean? And creativity does mean encompassing everything that is around you. So I think that Alice reflects his love for Alice reflects on him and it reflects upon his character and his acceptance of Alice reflects and teaches us or talks to us about who Will really is. So I love that character of Alice. Mm, yeah. And then there's also Christopher Marlowe as a very sexy and very duplicitous young star. Will! Oh, come and meet Christopher Marlowe. Will. Uh, William. Shakespeare. It seems your play is quite the thing. Very poor thing compared to your great works. Indeed. What were you thinking of when you decided to paint him that way, Craig? Well, e- even though Marlowe was a similar age to, to Shakespeare, he was the superstar playwright when, when Will came to town. And he was so famous that people would yell out, you know, lines of his plays to him as he was walking down the street, you know, holler you pamper jades of Asia, you know, and you know, wave and, and go on the way. And, and uh, he was a boundary pusher and, and he also was a spy recruited at Cambridge. So, you know, I think in a way he is a reflection of Will and they also form a very strong, strong relationship throughout the series. And, you know, he seems duplicitous and he is in in a way in the first episode but there is a great depth to Marlowe where is it you said it was finished I've been far too busy on her majesty's secret service to write I need a Marlowe play obviously but the unfortunate truth is I am now bound to Henslow of the Rose bound Henslow pays me not to write. And he's a realist. Someone's got to pay for his fabulous lifestyle. And, you know, he, he, can't, he can't write at this point. So, uh, he, you know, he does something for money. And uh, at a certain point, he realizes, well, you know what? That decision I made, and I don't want to give it away, isn't the right choice for art. So I'm going to make a different choice now. And someone happens to suffer for it. But... Marlowe's a realist. He isn't. There's no malice in 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 Marlowe. He's really just trying to keep himself out of the abyss. And I think 
he's a cautionary tale of of what Will could become. But I think what Will had that Marla didn't have, I mean, Marla was a grand architect, but Will was a humanist. And Will saw humanity and could connect with humanity in a way that few other writers have been able to. And I think he was more connected to humanity probably as a person than Marla was. Marla did die young and violently. So I think that's what ultimately saved Will perhaps, and got him through. And, and Marla, you know, I took the position that, well, perhaps Marla couldn't connect in the way that Will can, and that drives him mad. And that's his great attraction to Will. He wants to connect in the way that, that, that Will can, on all different levels, both in his art form, in his personal relationships, and there's a sort of a cat and mouse love story there, really, between the two of them. To me, genius is like the devil. It grabs you. And you never know when it's going to leave you. And there are lots of things. And I think that Marlowe is potentially pointing us to what Will might become, the dangers of being a genius, and then the genius suddenly leaving you, and then you try everything and you start to go to seed. That is one level. And I've always wondered what does genius... After all, the genius in Will is the one that drove him away from his family and kids. He went in and Craig originally talked about like how much of a risk he took. But what drove him there was genius. Genius can drive you mad. The whole the whole journey of a creative person, if you have genius, is to find ways to keep it alive in you. And when you forget it and when you lose humility, as I assume Marlowe did, and when you believe that it becomes your own, then that's the time that it starts to leave you and leaves you like a shell. You owe me your life, Master Shakespeare. And the dead is small. For I am but born this moment. A debt, nonetheless. A debt. <laughs> Was this kind of Marlowe character familiar to you from the creative types that you've worked with? Well, and, and it is, you know, the creative people that we all work with. And it's probably within us to a certain extent that that flirting with the edge is part of creativity because if you don't flirt with the edge then then you don't discover anything new if you don't risk failure if you don't risk risk you know if you're not somewhere dangerous art doesn't happen why would a poet actually want to put himself in a position where he could be killed at any time what is it about a character like that what is it about genius that drives you to a point where you want to play with death and you see that a lot with Van Gogh. You see that with a lot with people. They they want to explore the edges of life. Genius becomes an art, becomes like extreme sport. You need that provocation to keep you alive because you've had a drug. Mm. So yeah. it's inherently dangerous. Marlowe is very similar to the story of our great pop stars who ultimately died of drug overdoses. It's a very mm. similar. Their their desperate need to explore and explore and go to the edge and see what else is there and then forgetting at that time that what came to you came from inside you. It wasn't external. And when the inside you, when that disappears and flies away from you and you're constantly looking for it, it's very fascinating to look at genius and look at these people who are obsessed with genius, what happens, especially in the creative fields. Well, I'm thinking, I, I, I realize you've just started and we're only talking about the pilot here, but how long do you think this show could run, Craig? You know, are, are there enough stories for you and, and Shaker about, about Shakespeare and fake stories about Shakespeare and, and, and kind of 
80%, true stories about Shakespeare to to take this all the way from 1590 to 1616? No, Barbara, don't say that, please, God. One season nearly killed us. Also, you know, Barbara, look, you know, I, I can tell you history is something that was defined by the last popular person who told it. History is as relevant as, as it is to, as Craig said, it's only relevant if we can relate it to our lives now. And as long as we keep telling our stories in the context of will, then I think that just to say, well, actually it wasn't like that or it was, was like this, it's irrelevant. As long as we capture the spirit of William Shakespeare, because nobody quite knows the truth. The truth is interpreted and reinterpreted and reinterpreted. Well, well, I think that's right. And I think, you know, to answer your question, how long could it run? I, I don't know the answer to that because, you know, stories are fascinating at any age. But, but I do think these particular years, these five or six years, are about a young man who is striving to become successful and of course in success presents its own problems but but those very urgent violent vibrant early years do make great drama and i and i think there's a certain magic in speculating or imagining what those years might have been like I do have a TV question for you both, though, mm. because social, uh, well, viewer engagement and social media is such a big part of television now and film. And, and Shakespeare fans, I mean, they must be right up there with Star Wars and Harry Potter fans mm. in, in rabid passion, mm. Mm. although they might not necessarily watch TNT mm. um, they will until now. now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Get ready, TNT. You of... don't know what you're in for. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of viewer engagement are you planning? And what do you want? What what do you not want to get into? I hope that the fans, you know, as you call it, the Shakespeare fans, I I hope they will argue amongst, and I don't mean argue in a negative way. I hope they will discuss and tussle and pass through the show in in their own way and in their own forums because it's, you know, I hope it doesn't become about us against them, like, oh, it wasn't like this or, you know, it wasn't like that because we're not actually saying it was like that. We're saying it might have been like this. So I hope... It incites conversation and reinvigorates, you know, the base, if you like, the fans to explore more about Will's life and to go into his works and say, oh, maybe this meant that. Maybe he was talking about this when he, when, when, when he wrote that. <laughs> and to me, you know, if the storytelling, the idea is what do I hope? I hope because great stories offer different interpretations. And if the more interpretations a story offers or characters offer or character interpretations offer, the more exciting it is. And what I hope we'll see on social media is constructive discussions on people's various interpretations of what the end meant, what the scene meant, what Shakespeare said, what he meant when he said what. I hope it excites more ongoing and ever expanding discussion, not vitriolic argument about who's right and who's wrong, because that's irrelevant. Well, I can't wait for the rest of the series. I want to thank you so much. It has been a great time talking to you, and I wish you the best with, with the uh, whole season and, and future ones. Thank you Yeah, very and much. after the season, we'll have Son of Shakespeare. <laughs> We're going to get tell me, tell me if you daughter, had any, any daughter, or daughter of Shakespeare. Of Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Craig Pierce is the executive producer and writer and Shaker Kapoor is the executive producer and director of the new TNT series, Will, which premiered on July 10th, 2017. They were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Will Tell Tales was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. 
It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We have a lot of people to thank for their help in making this podcast possible. At TNT, we want to thank Martine Resnick, Scott Radloff, Heather Crawford, and Christine Baus. At the BBC in London, we had help from Tony Ward, Sharon Bow, Ruth Waits, Pete Smith, and Alison Atke. We also had help from Melissa Kuypers and Peter Stencil at NPR West in Culver City, California. Lastly, we want to thank Shaker Kapoor's assistant, Rhiannon Allen, and Craig Pierce's assistant, Angus Wilkinson. If you've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, I hope you'll consider reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library, home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. Music